AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the U.S. Grains Council, selling American corn, sorghum, barley, and co-products to buyers around the world every day. Global markets are an incredible challenge as well as an opportunity. So you simply cannot overstate the importance of boots on the ground, speaking the local language, and understanding local political and regulatory constraints. That's what the U.S. Grains Council does. The explosive food demand is in developing countries where a growing middle class is moving to first world quality diets. But as we look at those markets, the volatility is extraordinary. The U.S. Grains Council is out there 24-7, establishing relationships, building trust, and opening doors for corn, sorghum, barley, and their co-products. And that translates into economic gains for farmers in the United States. Now, AgriPulse, open mic. Farm broadcaster Jeff Nally spoke with U.S. Senator Mike Johans from Nebraska. Well, I wouldn't describe it as a consensus, and, and here's why I'm hedging a little bit on this. Uh, you have some members that really want to drop the hammer on this. They feel very, very strongly that payments are going to people who are not farming. They're investing. You know, um, when you put up a map and you're sending payments into part, uh, uh, into New York, um, quite honestly, something is wrong. You know, we're not farming in Manhattan, right? But you've got a lot of investors. They bought farmland. And what Chuck Grassley is saying on one end of the spectrum is he's saying, look, we've got to get tough. This, this really is for farmers, people who are out there every day farming. You've got the other end of the spectrum that says, look, that's not realistic. You, you have investors, but maybe it's a widow whose husband has died, who is still involved in the farming operation, is still receiving payments, but not involved in the way that we would traditionally think of getting up right in the tractor, planting the corn or the cotton or the soybeans, whatever. And so you've got just this huge disparity. That has always been the problem at USDA. You know, having been the ag secretary, I'll tell you, you, you sit there and you say, how far can we go on this? How far did Congress allow us to go? Because if phone starts ringing from people who are widows, who are still very much engaged in the farming, but they're not running the tractor, but maybe they're keeping the books or they're meeting with a son or daughter that's involved, then you've gone too far. So there is this constant balance that you're trying to achieve. And I think at, at the end of the day, that's going to be a tough one for the USDA. It always has been. You worked on the implementation of previous farm bills, and this one is different. Title I is much different. The education process that's going to come through the summer and those decisions that farmers make, those are big decisions, and it's not for a single season. No, uh, that's, that's what I'm saying to farmers is pay attention here because uh, you could be literally locking yourself in for the duration of the farm bill. But not only that, farm bills don't always get passed in time. This one went for two years. We just kept extending the old bill, extending the old bill. So it went two years beyond its expiration date. So it might not be five years. It might be seven years. It might be eight years. So, again, you've got to have that training at the FSA level so your people know their way around this new, new farm bill 
So when the farmer comes in and says, walk me through what the options are and help me decide what would be the best option. Give me the information where I can make that decision. Now, the USDA is never going to tell a farmer, you got to do this program. But they can lay out the options and the alternatives. Then the farmer can make a thoughtful choice about what to do. And, and you're right. You're 100% right. At the end of the day, these are binding decisions for a lot of years. And uh, that could be through good prices and bad prices and a good crop year and a bad crop year. And so you need to know what you're doing. Some of the analysts that I've talked to and farmers as well that really the first discussion is with your crop insurance agent. You've got to make sure the crop insurance is right. And once you have those decisions made, then that may help to define better which side of the Title I you participate in. Without a question, farm policy over time has been moving toward a more risk management-based farm policy. That is especially true in the Midwest. Or if you're growing crops that are kind of synonymous with the Midwest, if you're growing soybeans somewhere, for example, or corn somewhere, Boy, sit down with your crop insurance agent. Spend the amount of time you need to be talking through these programs and what they mean because you're, you're so right. Because at the end of the day, really what this is about is more risk management than the old uh, price protection program. Although there's some price protection in this farm bill, at the end of the day, it's really a risk management program uh, for those commodities that participate. The Farm Bill carries for five years, but appropriation bills are done every year. If we look at the House appropriation legislation, if it were approved, if it were approved, it would make changes into that law with regard to funding, and it would come at some of the very core things that you and other farm state senators stood for. Yeah, here's what I would tell you. Crop insurance, for whatever reason, always pops up as the program that should be cut. And it's just the reality of what we deal with. And, and I wish I could tell farmers, don't worry about it. It's been put to bed for five years, but uh, I, I think you're going to be fighting that issue year after year. Budgets are tighter. Everybody's trying to figure out ways to cut the deficit. And so they look at a program like crop insurance and they say, we can squeeze some more money out of this. And I think you'll fight that throughout the life of this farm bill. There was a time that all we really had to worry about in Congress was the House and the Senate Agriculture Committee and the Department of Agriculture. But now it seems that Corps of Engineers and EPA, especially EPA, have a lot to do with where we are. A definition of waters of the U.S. Gina McCarthy says it is our responsibility. We are mandated by the Congress and we are mandated by the Supreme Court to make a new definition. Some agriculture groups say it's a land grab. How do you see this play, this new definition that has now been introduced by this agency? All I would say to Administrator McCarthy, and I think she's genuinely trying to work with people and genuinely trying to listen to people like me, is if you are the one that has been charged under your, your view of the world to make the definition of what navigable waters now mean, there's a way of defining that that literally touches every uh, ounce of water in the United States right down to the farm pond. And there's a way of doing it in a thoughtful, common-sense way that doesn't put the big blanket of the federal government on the farm pond. Uh, I favor the latter. I favor the approach that basically says, look, let's try to figure out what we're really trying to accomplish here. Let's not make life hard for the farmer and the rancher out there. 
And I, I just worry too many times EPA takes the most expansive defi definition and does that land grab when they have an opportunity to do much less and still accomplish the purpose that they should be accomplished. I'm told by Secretary Vilsack and Administrator McCarthy that there are exemptions that are built in, that agriculture should not be affected, conservation programs should not be affected, but also has some very shrewd farmers that say if, an administra if the administration can redefine an 07 law, then can they not also redefine the exemptions where producers today are okay, but next season completely in a world of hurt and would have to have permits to conduct everyday business? Yeah, your question just so illustrates the point, the devil's in the detail. You know, uh, if she wants to make the case that she's got obligations because of a Supreme Court opinion, okay, I'll sit down, I'll read the Supreme Court opinion with her. But at the end of the day, she is the one that has a choice about how broad and expansive this is going to be. The more broad it is, the more she's going to be accused of a land grab, going too far, doing too much. Um, the more thoughtful and common sense based the approach is, the more it's going to settle well with farmers and ranchers out there. And uh, we'll see. We've seen in the Chesapeake Bay, we've seen in other watersheds of the country that voluntary programs are not enough. Farmer efforts are not enough. State decisions are not enough. The EPA says it has to be more. And some fear that what's happened in the Chesapeake Bay is coming to the Mississippi River. When Chesapeake Bay first popped up, I had farmers from Nebraska talking to me about Chesapeake Bay. Now, you may listen to that statement and say, well, how does that make any sense? They're not impacted by that. They knew. They knew that that was going to set the precedent for what comes next in other watersheds. And therein lies the issue. That's the very battle that we are facing here. Too often, this administration has taken a little grant of authority that was given to them at some point in a congressional bill and expanded it beyond any thoughtful approach, and we especially have that problem with EPA. Is it frustrating for you and for your state, your producers, that this decision on the volumetric output of renewable fuels for 014 is now five months into the season and we still don't have a number? Yeah, it is frustrating, and I think they genuinely at EPA were totally taken aback by the response that they got when they uh, they talked about these numbers originally. I just think they were overwhelmed by the number of people that weighed in and said, what the heck are you doing? Here's the problem we have. This is an industry that is still uh, trying to find out how to grow, uh, how to do the things that it wants to do, how to expand. The problem is with the uncertainty with the EPA, Basically, what's happened here is we've thrown a big wet blanket again over any potential for expansion. Who wants to loan money on a new plant if you don't know what the rules are going to be? That's where we find ourselves today. We're doing what we have been doing the last few years. We're producing ethanol and, and producing it for the marketplace. But at the end of the day, you're not going to see a lot of expansion until we get this uncertainty out of the marketplace. Let's move to Washington for just a second. I was told by an analyst that the Farm Bill would be the last major piece of legislation approved in 014. Uh, that leaves a lot of things that need to be done. When you look at the calendar, 
people here who are up for re-election, they really want to be home. They've got important issues at home that they've got to deal with. And so I just think when you look at the number of days left on the calendar for legislative work, I really believe that you won't see much getting done between now and November, unfortunately, but I think that's reality. But I do think you'll have a lame duck session. Let's wrap up. As secretary, you spent a lot of time working on trade. We sent the administration, the president, to Japan to try to resolve some of the differences with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I don't think we made a lot of a lot of bold decisions there, left currency on the table, left some other things unresolved. But how can an administration negotiate trade agreements when it doesn't have the authority to bring it back to the Congress for an up or down vote? They can't is the honest, straightforward answer to your question. Uh, President announces in the State of the Union he wants trade promotion authority, and about 72 hours later, uh, the majority leader, Harry Reid, member of his own party, says we won't be doing that. And um, Nancy Pelosi on the House side says, I don't know why my members would vote for that. So here's the straightforward answer. You've got very sophisticated trading partners out there, Japan, European Union, etc. They say to the president, you don't have trade promotion authority. Why should we agree to something if 535 members of Congress can amend it? Well, it's a really good question. They're never going to agree to a trade agreement under those circumstances. The president, I don't care if it's Republican or Democrat, needs trade promotion authority. They won't get a trade agreement without it. If you're not going to play Trumps in the game, I have no reason to play Trumps, which leads me to believe that this is talk as opposed to downright negotiation. I don't see negotiation when you don't have trade promotion authority. I've sat through hours and hours and weeks and weeks of negotiations, sometimes around the clock. And if you don't have trade promotion authority, they don't want to deal with you because they're not going to, you know, here's a trade agreement. I'll, I'll describe it. It's very straightforward. Finally, after weeks, months, hours of negotiating with each other, all the cards are laid out on the table. They're all face up. Everybody knows what's what. And you reach across the table and you shake hands and you say, we've got a deal. Do you think any country would ever reach across the table, put their cards up, shake hands with us, if they know that 535 people can change the deal? That's why you need trade promotion authority. And they just won't reach an agreement with us without TPA. And I will help the president. I don't care if the president is Democrat or Republican. They need trade promotion authority to do trade deals. AgriPulse Open Mic has been brought to you by the U.S. Grains Council. Selling American corn, sorghum, barley, and co-products to buyers around the world 24-7 every day. I'm Ken Root.